Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my daily politics podcast. It's Wednesday, July 26th. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. So this may go down as a historic week for the U.S. economy. Yesterday's tentative agreement averting a UPS strike by 340,000 workers could help set a new template for how many workers get paid in this country when the companies that employ them are making really big profits. There's other meaningful money news, too, like the 6% jump in Google's stock price yesterday being attributed in part to artificial intelligence not eating the search engine's lunch this year as much as some people feared. Does that indicate human beings are beginning to draw guardrails that establish who's in control, us over the machines? Or are things like chat GPT coming for us inevitably just maybe an economic quarter or two down the road? And since when is Google's algorithm something to get sentimental about anyway, right? And there's the Federal Reserve Board meeting today at which they may raise interest rates another quarter point or so, even though inflation seems to be cooling. And on those interest rate hikes, you may have noticed that the economy has not gone into recession, as some people predicted, from the benchmark rates going to 5% or so. In fact, an article in The Atlantic proposes that today's U.S. economy is the best U.S. economy ever. Yes, ever. It's by Annie Lowry, Atlantic staff writer and author of the 2018 book, Give People Money, How a Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work, and Remake the World. Annie Lowry joins us now and will compare notes with New York Times economics opinion writer Peter Coy, who, sorry to spoil the party, predicts we're still headed for a recession eventually, maybe next quarter. And who knows, maybe by then an AI robot will be the president of the New York Stock Exchange. Um, If the companies we know as Facebook, Google, and Twitter are now really called Meta, Alphabet, and X, I guess any kind of change that seems to make no sense is possible. Let's talk. Annie Lowry and Peter Coy, welcome back to WNYC. Thank you. Thanks so much. And listeners, you can call or text us at 212-433-WNYC. Or, I'm saying this for the first time, X us at Brian Lehrer. That's what Musk actually wants people to say now. Apparently, you don't tweet us anymore. Now you X us. Though maybe the way things are going over there, investors are going to X the company out. Annie, I'll, I'll bite on your premise. You actually wrote this is the best economy ever. You wrote those words. Want to make that case for our listeners? Absolutely. And it's not a case that I would make without a bunch of asterisks. But median household income is sitting pretty close to a brand new high. It's about $6,000 per household higher than it was in the late 1990s. Um, We've started to see really promising wage compression, which means that we've had a real increase in real wages. So even accounting for inflation among the lowest paid workers, we have very, very low unemployment and kind of sort of secondary measures of financial stress. So things like credit card defaults or bankruptcies, those are all uh, as low as they've ever been. Uh, Real disposable income is the highest that it's ever been. But I think it won't come as any kind of surprise to your listeners that, again, there's a ton of caveats here. 
The price of housing is just crushing for folks. We're spending a lot of money on health care, on child care, on higher education. And so I wouldn't necessarily say that this feels like a wonderful economy, but in, in a lot of kind of hard numbers, it, it kind of seems like it is. But those caveats, are they bigger than the thing they're the caveats on? You know, like when you talk about <laughs> housing and education expenses, higher education expenses, I mean, those are so defining for people's household income that I wonder, how can it be the best economy ever? Also in, you know, it, wouldn't it have to mean that everything we've been talking about here and elsewhere for decades is sort of wrong, like that there's been um, stagnation and decline of the middle class for the last 50 years? Absolutely. So I think I would pull out two things here, uh, maybe maybe even three things. So one, you know, as, as we mentioned, there's this real cost of living crisis. It's just really tough for people. A second factor is that we just had this big inflation shock and inflation is sort of receding, but not after not until after it's raised the price level of a lot of goods. And it also takes people a little bit of time to kind of adjust to inflation declining. It's been really stressful over the course of the past two, three years that every time you went to the grocery store, you felt like, you know, you know, you needed to put one or two things back on the shelf. That's really, you know, upsetting for people. And then the third thing I would I would also draw out is that, yes, we've seen this really nice wage compression in the past five years or so. But we are a very high inequality country, especially in terms of wealth inequality. And the 1% continue to do remarkably well, um, as they always have. And asset prices continue to be really high. Um, and so, you know, with all of those things, I think that we're at, headed into subjective territory as opposed to objective territory. Um, but we've seen increases in consumer confidence and that kind of thing. Uh, but I, I think it's reasonable for people to say, like, OK, you know, like maybe a lot of these headline numbers are good, but my life doesn't feel that great. And I'm working really hard. OK, Peter Coy, you get a choice now. You can respond to any of that or... Just go on and make the basic case in your latest piece, which is called Sorry, But I Think a Recession is Still Coming. Right. I want to start out by uh, engaging with Annie. By the way, very glad to be on with Annie and my work for many years. So uh, I think that the case that things are the best I've ever been would have been easier to make right before COVID. Um, the real median household income, which is a number of Annie's sites, is high now, but it is actually down a little bit from right before COVID. And that's because of inflation. And so uh, people always compare themselves to the way things used to be. And what's your baseline? Uh, if your baseline is uh, pre-COVID, then things don't look so great. They actually look slightly worse uh, because inflation has eroded our incomes. Um, but but overall, I agree that things are pretty good. And that segues into what I'm saying now. <clears throat> I'm not arguing that things are, are bad right now. You, you see a lot of uh, surveys of consumers who are complaining about the Biden administration, high inflation and so on, and saying, you know, that's why they don't want to vote for a Democrat in 2024. Um, I would argue that actually things are pretty good, but they might not stay that way. So if the uh, Democratic Party is worried about the uh, reaction of the voters today, imagine how much more worried they'll be if indeed there is a recession sometime in the next year. Peter, I want to talk about one of the metrics that you bring up in the article, which I think might be interesting for people 
why you think uh, this is one of the reasons you think a recession is still looming. It's the inverted yield curve that you're right about. Now, as a non-expert in these things, I've been confused by this just walking down the street in my neighborhood. And no listeners, I'm not such a geek that I walk down the street thinking about inverted yield curves all day. day. But I I can't help note it. (laughs) You do. That's your job. (laughs) But I can't help noticing in all the bank windows that a short-term CD pays a higher interest rate now than a long-term CD, which kind of makes no sense because usually they'll pay you more for getting to keep your money and invest for themselves for longer. So maybe it's worth parsing the idea of the inverted yield curve for our listeners, yes? Well, first of all, Brian, that is just an excellent way of telling the story uh, with a real-world example. So thank you very much for setting that up. That is exactly what an inverted yield curve is. You, It, it means when short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates, which is an inversion of the usual pattern. Usually, as you say, uh, the people who take your money will pay you more for it if they get to hold on to it for longer, um, making up for the risks of, uh, say, inflation eroding the value of their securities. So why would it be inverted now? Well, uh, think about it. The Federal Reserve has been raising short-term interest rates. That pushes up the short-term. And then you ask, well, why would the long-term be low? Um, That would have to do with people predicting, see, either lower inflation or lower growth or the Federal Reserve needing to turn around and start cutting interest rates because it fears a recession, some combination of those things. So usually when you see this pattern of an inversion, it's a it's a pretty reliable sign that recession is coming. You know, the economy is going to slow down because the Fed is working so hard to slow it down by raising short-term rates. And then you see that, that investors, in fact, do expect that to happen because they have a lower expectation for long-term rates. And this is a pattern that uh, pretty much every recession we've seen, uh, or, or every time we've had a steep inversion of the yield curve, we've seen a recession following. And this one is more inverted than any yield curve we've had since like 1980. Hmm. Annie, um, one of the metrics in your best economy ever case um, is that unemployment is at a 60-year low. Jobs are more plentiful than at any time in a generation also. Can I ask if you think that's an underlying reason for this tentative UPS settlement with the Teamsters Union, which is generally getting reported as favorable to the workers? Uh, I'm I'm not sure that that's what it is. That's going to be up to the rank and file, but that seems to be the pattern. From what I read, starting pay for part-timers at UPS would go up from $15.50 an hour to $21. Full-timers with longevity uh, will go up to $49 an hour from, I think, the low 40s now. Is this partly because workers have more leverage generally in today's job market, or is this very specific to UPS? Absolutely. So I I think that you cannot disentangle this deal from the broader economic environment. And so we went through, uh, you know, almost a decade long period in the wake of the Great Recession, in which there was just tremendous slack in the economy. And businesses sort of had their pick of workers. It wasn't terribly hard for them to hire. Workers had very little leverage to negotiate wage increases. 
And there was, you know, just a real malaise that sort of typified the Obama economy. Um, and that started to go away, as, as Peter wonderfully pointed out, really during the Trump years, that the labor market got tight enough, things were kind of getting better. Um, and, and, and that was what brought us forward to COVID, uh, the COVID kind of economy and, and that shock. Can, can and so, I yeah, stop you absolutely. there for just a second sure. and do a little parentheses here? Because I know what some listeners are thinking right at this moment. Wait, you're blaming Obama for a lackluster economy, which I don't think you actually are. But that was just no. the beginning of the slow recovery from the financial crisis that finally picked up speed like 10 years later when Trump happened to be the president. Yeah, absolutely. This was not the economy that the Obama administration preferred. Uh, they tried to get Congress to pass more fiscal stimulus numerous times. They went back again and again and again, and they couldn't get it passed. And so what you had was very, very loose and accommodating monetary policy. And you didn't have enough fiscal policy kind of helping the economy to get out of the hole that the Great Recession left. That wasn't really what happened when we had the COVID recession. We had really loose monetary policy. The Fed stepped in to sort of shore up financial institutions. Interest rates dropped again. But you also had a ton of fiscal stimulus, like much more fiscal stimulus than you had uh, during the Great Recession. And so, you know, that is what allowed this kind of rebound from that COVID recession to happen kind of quickly, uh, much faster than it did uh, during the Great Recession. And so I think that I really see the Teamsters and the UPS deal within that within that bracket. Um, importantly, the United States still has a very, very low private sector unionization rate. I happen to be a unionized worker, but again, among private sector workers, it's about 6%. Uh, that's very low compared to a lot of our peers. And so, you know, the Teamsters were able to negotiate this kind of really, really strong new contract for these UPS workers. But relatively few workers have the Teamsters on their side doing that for them. Um, and that's that's a reason that we tend to see more wage inequality in the United States than, again, in some of our peers. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, this actually should have spillover effects to non-unionized workers, right, because there's open competition for workers. And so, you know, if we continue to see growth, and I think Peter is right to raise some alarm bells about what we might be looking at coming forward, um, this, this, this in an indirect way will benefit all workers. So, Peter, let me get your take on that. Does it set a template at all, in your opinion, for companies that are doing really well, as apparently UPS is since the pandemic boosted shipping demand so much? I mean, it's down from its lockdown peak. People are back in stores, but still way up compared to before the pandemic. So UPS may be a more profitable company long term now. Um, there are other companies where the owners do great and the workers feel underpaid and exploited because the labor market just left them at a disadvantage and the company didn't care to share the wealth any more than they had to. Do you think this changes that in any watershed kind of way for American workers? I don't think so. And it's because of what Annie said, which is that UPS is an exception in having a largely unionized workforce. The Teamsters uh, represent uh, one third of all Teamsters in the nation work for UPS. So it's a hugely important employer for UPS. Mm. Conversely, the, uh, team, the UPS relies heavily, heavily on the Teamsters to keep its uh, cargo moving. So uh, this doesn't work so well at, say, Amazon. Amazon, uh, you know, is increasingly shifting away from relying on UPS for delivery of its packages and starting to get in the business of delivering for other companies. In other words, moving in the direction of competing with UPS. Hmm. And 
they're a non-unionized almost entirely. I, I, Brian, I, I know you've had uh, programs about attempts to unionize Amazon job sites that's, and places like Staten Island, and it's been incredibly right. uphill struggle. So yeah, I, I, I think as long as the U American workforce remains private workforce, that is almost entirely non-unionized, we should not expect that the tight labor market will translate directly into better wages for American workers. Did, did you say- Yeah, and, and just to- Go ahead, Anna. Oh, I was going to say, to add one other thing, um, one thing that I think is interesting is we've had um, really public strike activity. So with the Hollywood workers, the writers, and then the actors, um, with the UPS workers threatening to strike, with strikes at, um, at Starbucks stores, for instance, we've had a lot of, of public strike activity, but we haven't seen an actual increase in the private sector unionization rate. And so I think that people can kind of think like, oh, you know, like unions are are really turning the dial. But for precisely the reason that Peter pointed out, um, it's kind of like there's 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 uh, more noise than there is signal at this point. And you would really want to see that rate go up and more workers follow it falling under a union banner. Because um, unions, they do a lot of things, but we really do know that they that they do deliver wage increases for workers. You don't think, Annie, that this settlement could put wind under the sails of workers at FedEx? I have no idea if workers at FedEx are trying to organize, uh, but like if they wanted to, the main competitor, UPS, I presume is FedEx, um, and workers there could say, hey, look, look what they just got now. Uh, maybe we should have the Teamsters in our shop too, and somehow be a little more successful than they might've been yesterday at, at bringing that to bear? Yeah, so interestingly, um, FedEx, uh, the, the group of workers at FedEx that, that is unionized are their pilots, but that's a relatively small share of their workforce, right? And so, um, yeah, you know, I do, I do wonder if the, uh, the public nature of some of these, these labor fights might lead more places to be interested in unionizing. That might be a long and a slow process. Um, Biden administration is very pro-union um, and has wanted to increase the private sector unionization rate. Um, but it's been very low for decades and decades and decades now. And I think it's just going to be a long and a slow process. Um, I note that, you know, American businesses tend to be quite anti-union. And I think that even American workers tend to be less pro-union uh, than those in some other countries, in part because I think a lot of workers just have no experience with a union. And there's sort of a natural skepticism there um, about, you know, am I giving up some autonomy? Am I going to make less money? The company hates it. And so uh, it's not... It's not been generally a pro-union environment in the United States. Peter, want to add anything to this? Yeah, actually, I do. Uh, one thing is that the FedEx workers in the, in the express service are governed by a different labor law, the Railway Labor Act versus the National Labor Relations Act that governs the Teamsters uh, at UPS. And it's a harder uh, um, set of laws to organize under. But I'd also like to make a point that the UPS Teamsters relationship has over more than a century, going back to 1907, been a fairly productive uh, relationship. And it, it's a, I, I wrote about this in my uh, newsletter in the opinion section of the Times that it, we shouldn't just think of it as purely an antagonistic relationship between management and labor. Um, a well-run relationship between a union and an employer can be good for both sides in promoting worker loyalty, uh, on-the-job training, safety, um, 
and uh, in overall, uh, it's it can work, and I think they're showing that it that it is working. I read that article of yours, and I thought it was fascinating. Is there is there any specific example you can give for people who might assume that? Labor um, negotiations, labor relations at a unionized country company are by nature antagonistic. Uh, an example of that collaborative relationship that that company and its union have managed to foster? Well, I would go with UPS. Let's just stick with that uh, example. The, the, the negotiations were quite antagonistic. The uh, president of the Teamsters repeatedly threatening we're going to go on a strike. You know, UPS is not respecting us. It's and, you know, it was a lot of bluster. And then suddenly, as soon as the uh, contract is agreed to, not yet ratified, suddenly the tone completely changed. And it was like, we've just scored a huge victory for workers. <laughs> because, of course, I want to get it ratified. But, uh, you know, not, now the tone is much improved. Uh, Annie, you know, almost in relation to the Obama-Trump um stretch of discussion. I want to ask about another recent article of yours that suggests that debt might be a looming problem for the U.S. after all. Usually people in your camp, if I can identify your camp as meaning people who think the government can supply a guaranteed income for all Americans, as you describe in your book, so that would be people like Bernie Sanders, think debt is a political weapon for low-tax conservatives that they trot out when Democrats are in office but not really a big threat to this country. Do you, do you have an evolving take on debt? So the, the, the thing that gives me pause, and broadly I think that we can look back at the sort of discussion of debt and deficits that happened, you know, 15 years ago, 13 years ago in Washington, and it was like everybody had gotten ergot poisoning, right? Like here we're in this absolutely miserable recovery from a really, really deep recession. People are hurting. It's having all sorts of terrible health effects and effects on kids, and, and we're worried about the long-term debt. Uh, but we went through a long period of time where interest rates were really low, and now they're really high. And that does kind of change things. So, you know, I think that the the thing that I would kind of caution is, you know, the thing we would really worry about is investors no longer seeing American debt as the safest option for them and decreasing demand for American debt. And it's kind of hard to see that because, you know, they would have to be buying those safe assets somewhere. And I don't think that we have a viable alternative. But I do think that it's the sort of thing that, you know, Democrats have place themselves in the position of being unwilling to raise taxes on roughly 98% of Americans. Um, and they have not focused on convincing folks that, like in other uh your countries that we could be raising taxes in order to pay for benefits that would benefit all of us. So a lot of our kind of wealthy peer countries in Europe um, have higher spending and higher taxes. And none of it is, I think, like a crisis. And I think that you could overstate all of this, but it's just something that I'm keeping in mind and watching going forward. Um, because if the debt load does lead to higher interest rates, I think that's something to take seriously. But it's more something that I'm watching and thinking about than something I'm sort of panicked about at the moment. There's there's very clearly no bond vigilantes out there that are that are really problematic right now. We have other problems to think about. Um, and uh, I think it's just something interesting to watch. Annie? Interest rates going up again today at the Fed meeting, and do we care? 
We do care. Um, I think that, you know, if we had all been talking five years ago and uh, I, you know, somebody had told us that that mortgage rates were going to go up to seven and a half percent quite precipitously, do we think that that would cause a recession? I think reasonably all three of us might have said, well, yeah, maybe (laughs) that's a lot. And so um, we're in this kind of we've been in sort of a queasy period for monetary policy for a while now. We have inflation cooling off. It's not clear what the Fed is going to do, whether they are going to hold reds rates or, you know, progressives are now uh, calling on them to reduce them. And as Peter points out, there's some other signs of strain in the economy. Um, another thing I would point at as as being sort of a pretty, pretty prevalent sign of strain is that um, having a lot of problems with corporate uh, commercial real estate um, in big cities. And that's going to have a toll on kind of some midsize re- regional banks. And so um, I think that there are really kind of worrisome things to watch, even as the American consumer and the American worker is doing pretty well now, um, thanks in part to unions. And um, uh, the union-backed campaign, uh, the Fight for 15, I think is a big reason that, that, that we have the, the happy economy that we do as far as it is happy uh, at the moment. Well, referencing that um, recession watch metric from before, no inverted yield curve here. Good guests, yields, good conversation. Annie Lowry, Atlantic staff writer and author of the 2018 book, Give People Money, How a Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work, and Remake the World. And New York Times economics opinion writer, Peter Coy. He predicts we're still headed for a recession eventually, maybe next quarter. Uh, Annie writes in The Atlantic that today's economy is the best economy ever with a few asterisks. Go read their articles. Thanks, both of you, for coming on. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, thank you. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.